It's good to see you. Good to be here this morning. Uh, I'm always nervous when I travel and speak because of what people may think about my name. You know, D. I'm, uh, I'm a hunter, fisherman, macho man, and with the name D. And uh, so my best friend in high school's name was Marion. And uh, we formed a support group, the two of us, guys who hated their mothers for the name they got. And uh, we graduated from high school together, went to the same college, and we got there, and they had us in the girls' dorm. <laughs> That's a true story. But it was a Christian college. We were committed Christian guys, so we told them of their mistake a couple of weeks later. <laughs> I used to run back when I was a little skinnier and younger, and I uh, ran this marathon. It was around Crater Lake, and I... Whenever you run a marathon, you pay them 70 bucks and they give you this electronic timer. And when you're finished, you go up and they give you a can of warm pop and a, a little metal and a piece of paper that says you finished. And so I ran it and finished and got, went up to the table to get my, my, my medal. And the girl, the lady at the table, she looks and she says, well, I don't see your name here. I said, well, I sent my money in and I got my, my electronic timer. I must be there. And she looked, she says, well, I don't know what the problem is. And I said, because I, this happens, I said, look over in the women's section. <laughs> and so she did, and she got this smirky look on her face, and she said, yes, here you are. And by the way, you won your class. <laughs> Two other ladies over 60, and I beat them both. So, sort of the highlight of my running career. I left the farm when I was 28, the dairy, and uh, started pastoring and uh, helped start the church when I was a student in Salem. And then after I graduated and went back to the farm, the founding pastor left and they called and asked if I would come back and be the pastor. I didn't want to do that. I didn't like people. I liked cows and, and I had no absolutely inkling that God was calling me into ministry. But once they asked for me to come back, I kept struggling with it, thinking, I don't want to do this, but I, I don't want to not do it if God wants me to. And I didn't know how to figure that out. And so I asked my dad, and he said, go give it a shot, see what happens. Sometimes you don't know until you try something. And so I told him I'd come for one year. And it's been 45 years this October, so I've been there a while. And uh, it's been a bit of a journey. I didn't know anything about pastoring. I had two years of Bible college when I went there. All I knew how to do was work hard. And so I did that, and we went from a church of 12 to 200 in about two years, and then we had a big church split, and everybody left. I think the original 12 stayed. But, uh, and so I thought, well, okay, let's work a little harder. And so I went to some seminars and read some books and started some programs, and we grew back up to a church of 200 and had another church split. And, uh, and so then I did it again, and we grew up, and we had another, 1988 was our third, and I was fried. And I was pretty sure I'd miss, missed my, uh, I, you know, I thought I, I should have stayed on the farm. This is, isn't working. And um, I didn't have a problem with the preaching, teaching thing. It was when I talked to people. <laughs> that was when I had the problem. I did, this wasn't very relational. And uh, so they didn't think I liked them, and they would, things would happen, and feelings would get hurt, and I didn't know what to do about it. And it was about then Joe Aldridge from Multnomah Bible College sent a letter out to all the pastors in the greater Salem area. And in it, he said, uh, Salem is the least church state in the United States. And, and so I think it would be great if all the pastors from the area around the capital of Oregon would go away for four days and pray for a revival. 
And so it wasn't attractive to me. I didn't like pastors. I was pretty sure that when I hung around pastors, they knew I wasn't a real pastor. They could just smell a cow manure on me or something. And so I tended to avoid pastors. And so I thought, I don't want to go pray with 100 pastors for four days. But then they said there's a guy with some bucks that would pay the way of anybody with a small church that wanted to go. And so I thought, well, I'll go and I'll skip all the prayer times and eat the food, walk on the beach, write my letter of resignation and have a vacation. And so I went and I thought, well, I should go to the prayer, first prayer time just for some integrity. And I did. And I got incredibly convicted. And the next four days I spent in the prayer room with 100 pastors. Actually, I think it was 61. But... Uh, uh, and about all I did was cry uh, over the last 13 years. And what I began to realize was a significant uh, uh, parentheses blank failure in my life. And I went back to our church and we had our service and I stood up and I said, you know, we kind of like to bash the people that left, dirty, rotten people anyway. And uh, I said, but I just need to tell you that everything that's happened in the last 13 years is my fault. Uh, I've been a prayerless pastor. We've been a prayerless church, and we've reaped the results of that. I said, I don't know what's going to happen from here on out. I was planning on quitting, going back to the farm. But while I was on the coast at uh, this time, I committed to God that I was going to stay here until I died. I don't know if that's good news for you or not. But that was the commitment I made. And, so, and I'm also committed to being down here in the kitchen every morning at 6 and every evening at 9. People say, why nine? Well, because I had eight kids, and I had to wait until they were in bed. And so I showed up 6 o'clock in the morning, 9 o'clock in the evening, seven days a week. And um, first time, first meeting, everybody, shamed. the whole church showed up. They were pretty excited. They thought, surely I'd gotten saved, and we were going to have revival, and they wanted to be part of it. And uh, it was a great prayer time. And then it kind of petered out a little bit, but I kept at it, and people came one, two, three, and then it began to grow. And then the kitchen got too full, and so we had to add another one. Uh, prayer time, and then another one, and another one. And right now we run about 50 prayer meetings a week. Uh, some of them are four and five, and some of them are 25, uh, different places, different times of the week for different topics. But uh, we definitely are a praying church. We have prayer events. Uh, every two months we have what we call our five days of prayer. We start at five in the morning, and we go till 10 at night. And uh, we have a prayer room about this size with tables through it, with microphones on the tables. And uh, one person prays at a time, and we have our prayer etiquette, and one of those is pray short. And so people pray, everybody agrees, and we pray for five days, and we have a topic. Sometimes we pray evangelism, sometimes we pray missions, sometimes we pray various church ministries, sometimes we pray for me. We'll have ten days, uh, five days of prayer, ten hours a day, just for the preaching service ministry of the church, but uh, that's kind of what we do, and God's blessed. He has blessed a great deal, and... Uh, and I, I know, because of the first 13 years, that it isn't because of anything that I am or have done. I really am not any different now than I was then. I like cows. I don't like people. <laughs> You're the exception. I like you. So don't take it personal. <laughs> and uh, I love hunting and fishing and uh, working on old cars, things I can do by myself. I'm very much of an introvert. And so it's great to do something like praying that... Uh, results in God working in spite of me. So I'm going to talk about that. Let me read some verses to you from Revelation. This is the tribulation uh, description of it. In your bulletin are uh, the verses. You can follow if you like, or you can just listen as I read. And also, I think there's some notes there that have blanks, and I'll fill those in. So 
Revelation chapter 6, when the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill, a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, with pestilence, that's COVID, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Can you imagine that uh, wild beast running around killing people during this period of time? Somebody was saying, uh, they were saying to me the other day, this COVID thing is terrible. I said, you know, it's not going to be as bad as the tribulation. Oh, yeah, you're right. And moving on to Revelation 6, I looked and when he broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. Sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. The whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. The kings of the earth, the great men, and the commanders of the, and the rich and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? In chapter 8, the first sounded, there came hail and fire mixed with blood. They were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. All the green grass was burned up. Second angel sounded, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. A third of the ships were destroyed. Third angel sounded, a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is called Wormwood. Third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and, and, and the night in the same way. I looked and heard an angel, uh, an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Um, oops, let's see, I got that. There we go. Now, I don't know what your theology is here, but whatever it is, let's pretend that we are in the tribulation right now. We're going through it. So let me ask you this question. How are you going to pray? And so regularly, we have a prayer letter, and people put in prayer requests after every service, and it's a thick, I mean, it's like 12 pages, single space. And uh, there's a lot of people put in prayer requests. People call because they, we, we, they know we pray. We are about 500 people that get the prayer letter that are committed to praying it each week. And so as I pray down through that, now one of the things that you see regularly is pray that God would... Uh, do away with COVID. Pray that the, the shutdown would be over. Pray that things would go back to normal. That's a pretty regular prayer request. So if we're in the tribulation, are we going to pray that? That God would fix things, make things better? Probably not. Why? Well, because it says right there in the Bible, this is what God's planned. So why would we pray that God would change it if he has said this is what's going to happen for seven years, getting worse and worse? 
I doubt whether we would pray that God changes circumstances or God changes events or make things easier, make things better. If we could see in Scripture, that's exactly what he had planned for all along. <clears throat> Number two, during the tribulation, the worst, most oppressive government will exist. So I don't know how it is here in Illinois. In Oregon, we have the worst governor in the history of the world. <clears throat> so every week in the prayer letter, there's a prayer request, several numerous ones for Kate Brown. Uh, and it's a, uh, we don't print the worst ones. <laughs> Someone put in there, would you pray to God that he would kill her? Uh, we don't put that one in. And, but, you know, to save her and various things of that sort. Um, Revelations chapter 13, they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, this is the Antichrist, the ruler of the world during the tribulation, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a, a mouth to, uh, speaking arrogant words, blasphemies, and authority to act 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was given also to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. So he is very, very oppressive of the saints and uh, against God. And so we're pretending we're, that's happening now. How are we going to pray for this individual? You can read and see exactly uh, what he does and his end. So during hard times, the number of people who come to Jesus increases dramatically. So it's always been. So I don't know how it's been here. Somebody the other day said, Pastor D, would you please pray that COVID gets over? I said, no, I'm praying that it gets worse. And they looked at me and said, why would you do such a thing? I said, did you know that in the last year our church has doubled? We've had the fastest growth we've ever had as a church. Why in the world would I pray that it gets over? Man, if it goes like this for this, I'm praying for twice as much. Uh, they weren't sure they wanted to pay that price of difficulties, of trials, so that people would come to Jesus. Revelation 7, 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, which no one could count. You know, we talk about, I get together with pastors, and we talk about our evangelistic counting. That is, you know, pastors are like fishermen. If I catch six fish, I caught seven. You know, if I caught seven, no sense saying seven. You might have rounded off. Uh, caught ten. If it's twelve, it's fourteen. That's just the way fishermen are, and fishermen know that. So we always reduce whatever you say as a fisherman. We cut it in half, sometimes more. So sometimes pastors are like that when we talk about numbers. But here, huh? No one could count. That's how many there were that came uh, to Christ from every nation, all tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. One of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these people clothed in white robes? Who are they? Where did they come from? These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The tribulation is a tough time, and many, 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 more than you can count, come to faith to Christ. 
Number four, life happens in cycles in our lives individually. It happens in cycles historically. It happens in cycles in churches. Things kind of go up and then they go down. There's summer, there's winter. That's just kind of the way it goes. And as you study the history of the church, you'll see those cycles. Uh, And there are times when there are uh, just a time of harvest. Lots of people come to Jesus. Other times it's a little bit drier. And if you want to... um, See what indicates what those are. Uh, it's times of hard, difficult circumstances. One of the greatest revivals we had as a nation was following the Civil War. After all that took place there, um, Joel chapter three, put in the sickle. The harvest is ripe. Come, tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow. Their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And then Jesus in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, to accomplish his work, to do what my task is to seek and to save the lost. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? That was like an excuse. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look. Look on the fields, they're white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps, they may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows, another reaps. So Jesus said, I came into the world to seek and to save the lost, to die for the lost. That was my work. You, lift up your eyes and look and see that there's uh, opportunity everywhere. Number five, the greatest tool that God has given to us to reap the harvest is prayer especially corporate prayer. That is praying we do together as a church. I like tools. Uh, I restore cars, pickups. I restored a 48 Ford pickup. It was in somebody's Blackberry patch, and I saw it and pulled it out and paid $48 for it. (laughs) I said, what do you want for that pickup? He said, it's a 48, right? I said, yeah, $48.48. I said, done. I got Okay, I towed it home. And so totally restored it, cut out all the rust and painted it. Uh, rebuilt the engine, a Ford Flathead V8, put in, put on three Stromberg carburetors and uh, Offenhauser heads and mufflers and headers, and uh, put a 1970 rear end under it with uh, coilover spring suspension and a Mustang front end under it and a C4 automatic transmission, and uh, it was a, it'd really go. It was a nice pickup, looked cool. And so if you're going to work on a pickup like that, you got to have the right tools. And so I've restored a 65 Mercury Caliente, and now I'm working on a 67 Mustang, 69 Mustang. And so every time I get a project, i got to get another. There's not a tool made that I don't own. Uh, in fact, I tell people, I love my kids and my grandkids, but second to my tools. <laughs> Dad used to say, nothing you can't do if you have the right tool. I just bought a really cool tool. It's called a rotisserie. And uh, you bolt part of it to the front of the car and part of it to the back, and you lift it up, and you 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 got some little things that you can balance, and, and you can take and just turn the car, just turn it all around like that, just with one hand, just rotates, just like a rot- turkey on a rotisserie. Want to work on the bottom, turn it over. Want to work on the side, turn it over. It's like the coolest tool. <laughs> I like to show it off. Somebody says, "You got to Hey, let me show you my new tool." So God gives tools to us to do his work. And in the area of evangelism, we have a number of tools, and one of the most effective is the tool of prayer. Because reaching people uh, for Jesus, that's impossible. But with prayer, 
it's very possible. Acts chapter 1, this is the beginning of the church, and he, Jesus takes off to heaven. There's a bunch of people standing around when, they, when he does that, and he gives them an assignment, an assignment as, they, as he takes off. He said, go to the upper room and pray. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. One mind. They were praying like one person. Along with, one, uh, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, gathering of about 120 persons were there. On our five-day prayer events, we have usually around 100 people uh, in the prayer room. It's about this size with tables. We have microphones on the tables, and one person prays out loud. Everybody listens and agrees, so we're praying with one mind, one heart. And that goes on for 45 minutes. We take a 15-minute break, and then we pray for another 45 minutes, and we do that for five, Monday through Friday, 5 to 10, 5 to 10. And uh, uh, it's an amazing time because as people pray all over, just nonstop, bang, 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 there's just a growing sense of the presence of God and of his power that comes into that room. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. They've been praying now for 10 days. Peter, taking a stand with the 11, raised his voice, declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. And so he preaches a sermon, verse 40. And when many other, with many other words he solemnly testified, kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized that day. 3,000 people. Uh, that was after 10 days of praying, uh, were added. The church began on the day of Pentecost. So the church began with a prayer meeting, a corporate prayer meeting of 120 people. A couple of days later, they had another prayer meeting. It says there were 5,000 in that prayer meeting. There were seven uh, corporate prayer meetings in the book of Acts, each of them followed by a revival of sorts, people coming to Christ. <clears throat> A major barrier today in the church with Christians is our God. No, 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 that's the wrong word. Our idol. Our idol. Do you know what the idol is in the United States? It's comfort. That's the God we worship. Now, I have Parkinson's, and uh, I don't sleep well, and so my daughter got together this group of people to raise funds and they bought me a nice bed and it raises up and the foot goes up and it's super comfortable. And so when the money was raised, she says, go dad, go pick it out. You and mom go pick it out. And so we went uh, bed shopping and I test drove. You ever test drive a bed? <laughs> I test drove beds. What was my standard? Comfort. I wanted to get the most comfortable bed made in the planet Earth, and so I bought one. I like it. It's a good bed. I just recently bought a pickup. I test drove the pickup, and I got one that was comfortable. I have comfortable shoes, and I have a comfortable boat, and I have a comfortable bed, and I have a comfortable... That's our God. We worship comfort. And so we carry that into the church and do our walk with Jesus. And so we pray, but it's convenient and it fits our schedule, and it doesn't cost us much in the way of time or effort. It's comfortable praying. So in the early days of the church, when the kids were coming and problems were happening, my wife likes to talk. She solves problems by talking. She thinks by talking. 
I don't like to talk so much. And so she would fuss at me. She'd say, we need to talk. I said, yeah, yeah, you're right. We will, we will. And she'd say later, we need to talk. I said, yeah, 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 you're right. We will, we will. And then so one day I said to her, I said, I got a solution. I said, I'll buy uh, the Pepsi. You pop the popcorn. We'll watch Monday Night Football. and We can talk during the ads. <clears throat> she started crying. I'm thinking, women, who can understand them? She wants to talk, and I come up with a plan, and she doesn't like it. Huh. Uh, I know why you're laughing. You're thinking, you're not really that stupid, are you? <laughs> so people say, I pray while I'm driving to work. I pray while I'm washing the dishes. That's good. You ought to pray. But if that's all that we give God, I wonder how honored he is by that um, devotion to prayer, when we give him time that is convenient, it's comfortable, doesn't cost us a whole lot. Uh, there's not much what you'd call devotion. The command is to be devoted to prayer. And so I think it's not a mystery why we often don't have a lot of people come to Jesus in our churches, even uh, during hard times, because God says it's prayer that makes it happen. And if you're going to give me leftover, comfortable, convenient time, it isn't going to happen. My dad was uh, not a believer until two weeks before he died of liver cancer. I had the privilege of leading him to the Lord and baptizing him just before he died. It was a great honor. He, my dad and I were very close all the years on the farm. He was a great, great dad. He was a good person. And that was what kept him from faith is because he was such a good person. He didn't think he needed saved. But... Uh, He'd go to church because he wanted us boys to go. But when he came, he'd sit in the back row right next to the door. And it got too convicting, he could slip out. Or if anything kind of spooked him, he could slip out. And the sermon, uh, the, the offering, when the church I grew up in was always last. We took it last. I, we used to jokingly say they did it last, so if the sermon was bad, we didn't put any money in. And, uh, but when the sermon started, Dad would take his wallet out and pull a dollar bill out of it and... While the sermon was happening, he would roll the dollar bill up real tight. He was in the Navy 22 years through the Second World War. He was a boatswain mate, and they can tie more knots than anybody on the planet Earth. He knew every knot ever uh, invented. And so he would tie the dollar bill in a knot. He would pull on it, poke on it with a pencil, and bite it. And then he'd tie a second knot in it, and he'd pull on it and bite on it and push it with a pencil and get it nice and tight. He'd tie a third knot. He could sometimes get four knots in a dollar bill, and it'd take him the entire sermon to get it all done, nice, tight, crisp knots. And then the offering plate would pass, and he'd drop it in. Every Sunday. So when he died, the lady who counted the offering, she kind of figured out that it stopped happening. So she called me. She said, was that your dad who tied that dollar bill in knots? I said, it was. And she said, I hated him. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> so if my dad were still here, and you were to ask him, are you a giver? I think he'd say yes. Dollar a week? What do you do with a dollar a week? How much did that cost him? So why would he say he's a giver? Because he attached so much ceremony to it. So we do that. We pray before we eat. Uh, you know, we pray before we take a trip. We pray here a couple of times already. It's what you call ceremonial. Doesn't cost anything. Doesn't take any time. Doesn't take any effort. It's sort of a blessing. We hope God will do something because we offer a 60-second prayer. That's not that we shouldn't. But then when we start thinking that's what defines our prayer, that's who we are by that ceremonial prayer time. 
Uh, not much comes of a dollar a week. And not much comes from God on the basis of ceremonial prayer that's offered a little bit here and a little bit there at appropriate times. So what God honors is that which costs us something. Uh, that which costs us something. Because it indicates that we actually want what we're asking. That we want what we're asking because we're willing to pay the price. <clears throat> John 12, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, the earth and dies, it remains alone. If it, if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am there, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's kind of, you put all that together, a grain of wheat falling to the ground, denying ourselves, serving him. I think Jesus is saying that you're going to have to die to self if you're going to be my servant. Um, and if you do, then you'll bear much fruit. Matthew 7:13. enter through the narrow gate. The gate is wide, the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it that easy, uh, comfortable, convenient way. The gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life. There are few who find it. Colossians 4:12. Epaphras, who is one of your number of bonds, Slave of Jesus sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may, be, uh, may stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God, always laboring earnestly. <clears throat> Number seven, we need to pray for each other that God will put in us a sense of urgency to reach the lost around us. We get comfortable with uh, the fact that our neighbor is going to hell. We get comfortable with family members. I mean, we just know it's... Uh, the way it is, and so we kind of lose our sense of grief over that, our sense of urgency to do something that matters. Jesus said, uh, the harvest is plentiful. That's as true now as it's ever been. The laborers are few. That's even more true now than it's ever been. Therefore, here's what you need to do. Beseech the Lord of the harvest. Beseech, that means to pray uh, and pray really pray. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. How does he do that? I think he creates in us this sense of urgency. He puts in us Jesus' heart that moved him to the cross. And so when we are commanded to pray a particular prayer, God is obligated to answer it. Beseech the Lord of the harvest that he would thrust out laborers into the harvest. And that's a prayer that he will answer, but he won't do it on the basis of convenient, comfortable, cost-me-nothing uh, ceremonial praying. <clears throat> we need to pray for each other that God will give us boldness. Now, that's a big problem. We're afraid of what people think, and so we are timid, intimidated. We don't do much witnessing because of that intimidation factor. Um, Let's see, uh, did I go that one? Eight? No, I did. I was eight. Uh, I got ahead of myself there. Sorry about that. Uh, uh, boldness. Acts 4. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord, said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, all that is in them. Verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of the threats, the threats, uh, the threats to kill us, imprison us. Grant that your bondservants may speak your, God, your word with all boldness, with all confidence. That was a prayer request of the early church. 
And then in, in verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Spirit, Holy Spirit. They began to speak the Word of God with boldness. They began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Why? Because the Holy Spirit working in them um, gave them the boldness, and the reason was because they prayed and asked specifically for boldness. And let's see, did I give? No, there we go. Uh, we need to pray for each other that God will give us opportunities, divine appointments. So God loves to provide a person for us that's ready, that's convicted, who's searching, that wants an answer. Bring them right across our path. Intersect us with them. The other day I was sitting, sitting at my desk and I was studying for a sermon. My door was open and uh, we get UPS packages all the time. And the UPS guy walked by my door and he stopped and he stuck his head in and he says, Hi. I said, Hi. How you doing? He says, Not good. I said, really, uh, you have a flat or something go wrong with work? Or, no, he said, it's my marriage. My wife's all uptight about COVID and worrying, and she's a mess, and, and we don't get along very well anymore. And, and I thought, it's kind of funny that he just stopped and unload on me right there. I said, uh, are you on a time crunch? He said, well, it's my break. I said, hey, why don't you come in and sit down here? I'll pray for you. I'll pray for your wife. We can talk. Well, I led him to Christ. Uh, so, was I the great evangelist? No. All I did was say, y'all come in and sit down. That's about as obvious as appointment as you can get. Who does God give those to? Those who want them. Those who ask for them. Those who pray diligently. Lord, would you bring someone into my life that needs Jesus and help me to see them? When you do, Colossians 4, 3, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word. Praying that God would open up to us a door for the word. God loves to answer that prayer if we pray it. So that we may speak forth the, the mystery of Christ. Uh, <clears throat> we need to pray for each other that God will give us wisdom. So we know what to say. I had a guy in our church call the other day. He said, Pastor, I'm having lunch with a guy, and uh, he wants to trust Jesus. I said, cool. He said, I need for you to talk to him on the phone. I said, why? Well, I don't, I don't know what to say. I said, I tell you what, I'll just pray for you right now, and you just keep talking. Uh, God's the one that brought him into your life, not me, and so I'm not going to take this over for you. You, you go for it. And uh, just open your mouth and talk. And I'll pray real hard that God gives you the words to say. Colossians 4, 3, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, lost people, making the most of the opportunity. Again, that's a... Paul says, pray, that I'll have the right words to say. If Paul's saying, pray for me, that I'll have the right words to pray, I can pray for you, and we can pray for each other, that God will give us wisdom, and we'll know what to say given the opportunity. Uh, that's what he does. We need to pray for lost people, that the Holy Spirit will convict them of their sin. So that's what the Spirit of God will do for lost people when we pray for lost people, is he will convict them, make them feel like dirt. That's how I pray. So they'll know they're lost. 
I, I got a job when I was a freshman in college selling knives. It was on the bulletin board. I needed a job. And so I went and went through the little seminar they give you, knocked on the door. I, got, I would like to sell you some knives. No, thank you. Knocked on another door. I'd like to sell you some knives. No, thank you. I went for two weeks, never sold a single knife. I told my wife, I said, you know, it's impossible to sell knives to people who don't want knives. It's impossible to lead someone to Jesus who doesn't want Jesus. It's impossible to save somebody who doesn't know they're lost. So when we pray, the Spirit of God convicts them, and they become in their own eyes desperate to be saved because of the work of the Spirit. So when does the Holy Spirit do that? When we pray. John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage I go away, Jesus speaking. If I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world. Will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's not just a random everybody in the world thing. Otherwise, everybody would be clamoring to get saved. It's for who we pray thing. And so this is what the Spirit of God will do, but we need to pray and ask the Spirit uh, for specific people that he would, and as I said, I pray for people, and I say, Lord, would you make them feel like dirt? Make them feel like the rottenest, biggest, fattest sinner in the entire world. And then they'll get saved, because then they'll know they need to get saved. <clears throat> we need to pray for lost people that God will draw them. God will draw them. That's why prayer is such a powerful tool, because there's so many things God will do that makes evangelism relatively easy if he does it, and he does it when we pray. John 66, 44, no one, no one, absolutely zero can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So God has to draw people. Who's he going to draw? Any, meeny, miny, mo. Oh, yeah, okay, I'll draw him. How about him? Now let's spin this wheel in heaven, see whose name pops up. That's who we'll draw. Uh, when I pray for someone diligently, God will draw them. When I pray for somebody diligently, then God will convict them through the Spirit of God of sin. And then I pray and say, Lord, would you bring them across my path? Would you grant me the right words to say? And I pray that for others as well in our church. And he loves to answer those prayers because he doesn't want anybody uh, lost. We need to pray for lost people that God will open their spiritual eyes to be able to understand the gospel. So Jesus illustrated this in his physical life. He went about healing the blind uh, physically, and he does that now spiritually. Uh, people just don't get it. You ever listen to the gospel? God leaves heaven, becomes a man, lives a sinless life, gets nailed to a cross, and the sins of every person get put on that person, Jesus on the cross, and then he dies for the sins of the world, and God punishes him for the sins. If you're a lost person listening to that story, it sounds like, it, it just sounds weird. Really. That's how we get to heaven? And... Uh, and then the devil, he further complicates things terribly. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in whose case the God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they cannot, they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So every lost person you see is totally blind to the gospel. It makes no sense. They don't get it. 
So how in the world are they going to understand it when I share it with them? Because God's going to miraculously open their eyes so they can see. Who will he do that for? Those who I pray for. Acts 16, 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. She wasn't a believer in Jesus. She just was following the Jewish faith, was listening to, uh, to the Lord, opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. That is, he removed the blinders so she understood. She got it. It made sense. We need to pray as, an, as the army of God that God will blind, bind the devil and his demons and set people free from his control. And so we, in our prayer times at our church, we pray diligently that God will send out legions of angels to war and to fight against the kingdom of darkness and drive them away and bind them, set lost people free and give them eyes to be able to see and to understand the gospel. Uh, let's see, I'm early on that one. Second Timothy 2, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. Repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Lost people are captive prisoners of the devil. They can't see. They can't understand. I mean, they're in a, they, they, they can't get saved. It's impossible unless I pray for them and ask God to give them sight to remove the blinders, to set them free from the control of the evil one, to convict them of sin, to draw them to himself. Where the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, together we're powerful, on our own we're weak, and so the body of Christ is used a dozen times by Paul in the epistles. The body of Christ, that means the body which is Christ. It's his method. It's his tool. Uh, when he was here as a man, physically in the body, walking around, doing what he was doing, healing, that was the body of Christ. Body one. Now he's in heaven, and we, the church, are the body of Christ. We are body two. The Spirit of God indwells us, and we do his work. Uh, reaching the lost as he came to seek and to save the lost and die for the lost. He's given us the same responsibility as I was sent by the Father, I send you. And he's given us the tool of prayer to be able to accomplish it. Matthew 18, 19 through 20, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything you may ask, it should be done for my, by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together, there I am in your midst. And uh, so... We've been given the responsibility to be witnesses for Jesus. And as a good farmer, there's a season for reaping. And it's easily marked by the circumstances and the events of the day that create confusion and anxiety and uh, fear of the future and, and unknown what to do. And during those times, we have our greatest opportunity to reach people with the gospel. But if we just do church as normal, if we just do token praying and convenient, comfortable praying, it isn't going to be our church that does it. It'll be someone else's. And so when times get tough, that's when we're going to ramp up the praying. And we're not going to ramp it up so that we can have an easy life. 
We're not praying for convenience or comfort. We're not praying for things to go away, to go back to normal. We're praying that we would be full of boldness and God would provide many opportunities and the Spirit of God would go out and convict the lost concerning sin and uh, would draw them to himself and that we would have our eyes open to look on the fields that are white, always looking for opportunities, not missing a single one. And uh, as we do that, then we'll see many, many people come to Jesus. That's what we're about. We're not a shoe factory. We're not a, uh, a car factory. We're a soul factory. We reach people. That's what we're about. That's our purpose as a church, as a calling, to make disciples. And so we've got to want that. We've got to want that. Uh, the more we want, the more we pray, the more we seek, the more we work, more people come to Jesus. So it's a commitment thing. I will pray. I will pray. I will be devoted to prayer. I have a list of people that I pray for every morning. I call it my seven for heaven. There's more than seven on the list, but it rhymes, so I use that term. And so when I first started, I took my toothbrush and I uh, took tape and I wrapped around the handle of it until it was a big old wad of tape on it. And I put a cross on the tape with a felt tip pen. Now, I always brush my teeth. I don't remember ever not brushing my teeth. I go hunting, I take my toothbrush. I go fishing, I take my toothbrush. I go on a bicycle trip, I take my toothbrush. I take my toothbrush, I pick it up to brush my teeth. What's that wad of tape on there for? <laughs> and I, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the reminder to pray for my seven for heaven. First person on my list is Peter, works up at the hardware store in Jefferson. I see him at least once a week. And next one on my list is Joe. He works at the Jefferson Auto. I see him about twice a week. And so I've got my list I pray for every day, every day, every day. I don't fail because I brush my teeth every day. Oh yeah, I gotta pray. I gotta pray for my seven for heaven. And I pray that God will convict them of sin, that he will open their eyes that he will draw them. He will set them free from the control of the evil one. And so when you pray, you'll have somebody walk by your office door, stick your head in and say, hey, got time to talk? God will provide divine appointments for you, but you got to want them and you got to be willing to pay the price in prayer. Not convenient, comfortable uh, prayer that costs you nothing. Uh, conversation with your wife and the ad in Monday Night Football doesn't do much. And so we don't want to dishonor God by giving him leftover convenient time uh, for the world. That ought to cost us something. It costs him a lot. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you. We love you. We thank you for our own salvation, the fact that somebody must have prayed for us and we heard the gospel, we understood it made sense, and we now are in your family headed for heaven forever. We get a glorified body and joy and beauty beyond comprehension. I pray that you would put in us this incredible hunger and thirst to bring many people with us and that we'd be devoted to prayer knowing that it's the greatest power that we have to do your will and to do your work in our lifetime. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.